What's up, Videolanders? I'm your host, Brad Hawkins. Quick reminder, you can find us on adventuresinvideoland.com or on our Facebook at Adventures in Videoland. Tonight, I have the honor and pleasure of sharing with you an awesome conversation with author Matthew Wade. He recently wrote the novel, The Burgeoning Heart of Bambi Bazooms. We had a great conversation. We talked about his novel, his inspirations, writing tips, everything from publishing to distribution. I think you'll find this to be a very valuable conversation if you're looking to become a first-time author or if you're just fascinated, like me, with the mechanics of storytelling. So please welcome Matthew Wade. What's going on, Matt? Not a whole lot. Just chilling. So you've written three novels, right? Yes. So all three of your novels are rooted in science fiction and fantasy, correct? Yeah, my first three are fantasy novels, yes. So are those your favorite genres, then? Uh, overall, yeah. I mean, I'm also big into crime fiction. Uh, as of probably, like, when I was in high school, I started getting more into crime fiction. But, yeah, I started off on sci-fi and fantasy, and I read that whenever I can. If I can find a good story, a current one or an older one, yeah, um, those are probably two my two big genres, though. So you just published your third novel, The Burgeoning Heart of Bambi Bazooms. Before we talk about your latest novel, let's get into the mind of Matthew Wade. So what inspired your interest in writing science fiction and fantasy? So what probably inspired my interest in, in writing sci-fi and fantasy is uh, Star Wars, most likely, because uh, I got into that very early. Uh, my dad introduced me to it, and uh, I was hooked from there. Um, I also read quite a lot of sci-fi and fantasy growing up from the classics like uh, 1984 and Frankenstein to other stuff like Terry Brooks's Magic Kingdom of Landover series and uh, Dragon Riders of Pern. So, yeah, I was all into that. Um, cartoons probably also a big influence. Um, if I really want to be honest with myself, that might be actually what inspired me to even maybe even write in the first place. Cause, uh, uh, there was like this character called the fresh koala that I came <laughs> up with cause I was big into like noodles and Avengers little koala on uh, Nickelodeon, but, uh, definitely also Disney films as well though. Big nice. into Disney. Now, did you write a lot as a kid? Not when I was younger, not a whole lot. I mean, yeah, I do. I actually went back and found these old journals that I had from school, and I was like writing these weird short stories about scarecrows, scarecrows and ghosts and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I actually did write a little bit when I was a kid. Not like full fledged stories. I wasn't at that point at that point in time, but. Yeah, I, I definitely had the creative bug in me. Man, that's priceless to look back at yeah. old journals like that, you know, because a lot of people, yeah. some of that stuff just gets thrown out, you know, mm -hmm. but that's really right. cool. So let's talk yeah. Let's talk about uh, your latest novel, The Burgeoning Heart of Bambi Bazooms. It's a very yeah. interesting book title. You, you could have called this novel a million other things, so tell us about the inspiration behind that title. So, I mean... This may surprise you, but I can't actually take credit for the name Bambi Bazooms because I actually did a web search on it right after I had written the novel, and it, it turns out other people had used that name. Uh, like, someone used it as a character in Second Life. Uh, some other people just use it as a generic name for a busty blonde stripper. Hmm. So as soon as I thought of that name, though, I thought, there's no other name I can use because it's so representative of that type of character, that stereotyped 
um, blonde, busty, young sex worker, and I decided what better name to use sort of to, to write a story that completely subverts that. So, yeah, I, I mean, the name for Bambi Zooms I had to use, and uh, the rest of it, like the burgeoning heart of it, I just wanted something with uh, some cool alliteration just to have a nice sound to it. Yeah, it does have a nice sound. I like the burgeoning heart. Yeah. You know, I like that. Yeah. So were yeah, you yeah. ever considering any other titles then? Uh, no, I was not. I pretty much uh, stuck with that because I liked the sound of it, and yeah, I didn't see a need to change it. <laughs> nice. So tell us yeah. a little bit about the burgeoning heart of Bambi Bazooms. Let's keep it spoiler-free, but what's your book about? Okay, so it's about the title character who starts off as a stripper in uh, this neighborhood called McKayville in Chicago, and I named it that after the early animator Windsor, Windsor McKay, oh, cool. who's, uh, who created uh, Little Nemo, and uh, other early cartoons and comics. That's nice. And uh, so she starts off as a stripper, uh, meets this guy named Steve Warner, uh, who's this option trader in Chicago, um, one night during uh, Human Night, which is a night at her, where she's working at her club that where uh, humans can interact with cartoons. And uh, then uh, they meet, fall in love, uh, go through a relationship, and the story is mainly about uh, how that relationship, as well as Bambi's other dealings with humans, impacts not only her relationship with people, but her relationships with her other cartoons. Okay. What so that's you... the gist of it. There's a lot more to it, though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's a complex world, so we can get into that, too. Okay. What year is Bambi set in? Uh, it's set in 1993 um, on occasion of her 50th birthday. So she was originally created in 1943. Okay. Did you want to share some of the complex themes? Uh, yeah. So the way that Bambi Bazooms was created uh, was that her artist um, drew her using this enchanted pen with, filled with the ink of a giant squid. Um, so then Bambi's comes to life. He actually has an older sister named Fanny Firecracker. And, uh, that relationship comes into play, uh, the relationship between Bambi and her sister Fanny and their friend Cinnamon Buns. And, uh, then there are also a lot of complex relationships that, uh, complicate the plot, like, uh, her relationship with her former boss, Vic Volpine, who's the owner of the Sly Fox Theater, where Bambi once worked. And, I mean, aside from the relationships within the cartoons that gets complicated uh, by the humans, um, the reason why, well, I shouldn't get, I don't want to get too spoilery, but there's an event in the past that complicated uh, the relationships between humans and cartoons. So the bulk of the book is uh, Bambi dealing with the prejudice that humans and cartoons mutually feel for each other just because there's such different types of um, beings. Like cartoons are these magical beings, very powerful, immortal, invincible, and these humans are the almost for the most part complete opposite of that and they just have this natural animosity due to that and i think that's like a theme that really comes across in a lot of other types of stories like roger rabbit for example 
Um, and that's definitely a theme I wanted to hit. I, I had a feeling that would be one of the major themes just because it arises so naturally. Yes. But then you also just have some themes like uh, stereotyping and sexism and racism and just like this whole uh, boiling pot of emotions and tension that really makes it all the relationships uh, very interesting. So is Bambi one of the first cartoons presented in your world then? Uh, yeah, pretty early on. Um, I mean, it's Bambi and Fanny, I think we're like the first two. Then the uh, the pen gets passed around just because uh, your creator is feeling pretty generous. So all these other cartoons uh, show up. And they set a certain point, they stop. I haven't explained that. Um, I might do that in a sequel one day. Okay. So are there more yeah. cartoons than humans in your story, or do you strike a good balance between the two once the story gets going? Um, there might actually be more cartoons only because Bambi is the narrator of the story, so it takes place uh, a lot in her world. And, uh, of course, she does visit the human world quite a lot, especially after she meets Steve. And so she meets his friends and, uh, and a bunch of other people. And, yeah, so it's it's a decent balance, but I would say it airs more to the side of uh, cartoons. Okay. Do you bring in any events or pop culture from 1993? I would say most of that is the soundtrack okay. uh, in terms of what I introduced actually from the era. It's not exactly a period. Um, the reason I chose 1993 was mainly for the theme of Bambi turning 50, re- reaching a midlife crisis and, de- and determining w- what she wants to do with her life. Um, she realizes, well, the world is this way, but why does it have to be this way and what can I do to change it? Yeah. It's, um, so it's really just mainly a date that I picked because I wanted to keep to that theme. Um, but yeah, I, do, I decided if it's set in that era... And she's a stripper, and she's dancing to music. I want to introduce uh, some music from my childhood that I really enjoyed. You know, and by the way, um, I like that you created a soundtrack for your novel. I think more authors need to release soundtracks. I mean, can you talk about the tracks and how they influenced your story then? Yeah, so most of the tracks that I chose were either... Well, most of the tracks I chose were related to Bambi's dancing because that's a natural place to introduce music into the story, especially since it's really connected uh, to her world in that way. And uh, in terms of the more modern tracks, I chose songs that I grew up with from my childhood, like on the cover of the novel, that's from a scene where she's dancing to Belle Bibbs DeVoe's Poison. Uh, that's a really a song I really liked when I was growing up, so I decided to use it. And as terms of the songs that she's dancing to when she's like in the club the rest of the time, uh, in the burlesque style of striptease, it's songs I had to search for online. Uh, what songs really fit with that dance style? And also what songs fit with the characters' personalities? Because I wanted to make sure there's like a connection there. It has to work with the tone of the scenes and um, the and the style of the characters as well. So we have these old strippers, right? So is this is this story yeah. geared more towards adults or young readers? It's geared uh, more towards adults. Um, I would say like college age and up. Yeah. So why do you think Bambi Bazooms is an interesting character to read about? I mean, what made you want to write about a 50-year-old cartoon striptease? 
Well, I mean, I think like I was talking about at the beginning, just uh, coming up with the title, I wanted to subvert uh, very stereotyped um, images and concepts of women. And I figured you can't really get more stereotypes, more of a stereotype than not only a stripper, but a cartoon stripper, just (laughs) really making her someone that on the outset you think, well, she's just a joke. Um, she, we, we can laugh at her. We can get turned on by her. But she doesn't have anything to offer more than entertainment. And uh, so not only did I want her to think, well, can I be better than this, but also the readers to think, well, um, just by examining this very exaggerated character, um, hopefully that can change their viewpoints on what it what it means to view people through like a sexist lens and uh yeah just really think about um where the nature of sexism comes from or or just uh prejudice in general and uh yeah how you can uh change your mind on that essentially is bambi your favorite oh go ahead sorry I was just going to say, but of course, I also intended to write a really fun story. So, I mean, mostly it's uh, humorous, but I do introduce those uh, more deeper, serious themes where it arises in the plot. Yeah, and I'm sure a cartoon striptease is fun to write. Yes, it is. (laughs) So, is Bambi your favorite character in the book, then? I would say she is, yeah. I mean, she's fun to write because she has this innocent side to her that's uh, really endearing. And, uh, but she's like on the completely unashamed of her sexuality. So I enjoyed writing that part. I mean, especially in this day of age where, uh, with the conservatives being in power and, um, saying that, you know, when sexuality is bad and sluts are bad and all that stuff, just someone who doesn't think about that. Cause like in the cartoon world, the way I've written it is that, um, for the most part, they view that they're not really ashamed about themselves. And there's, there are conservative aspects even to their world, um, just because they were created in the 1940s. Um, sex isn't really one of them, though. Um, but, yeah, it was fun to do that. And, yeah, just, of course, her profession lends itself to some fun moments. And, um, yeah, it's also just fun to subvert that and show chart her growth from being um, innocent and a little bit naive, just to learning more about the world, caring less about just herself, more about her friends and family and uh, the people she impacts. So that was uh, pretty fun to write. Are there any other characters that you'd like to highlight? Uh, definitely uh, Fanny Firecracker, her sister, just because just to write that dynamic between them about um, how Bambi's always questioning things and wanting to grow. And um, Fanny's tends to be a little more, more cynical and uh, wants to keep things the way they are. And she doesn't understand why her sister's uh, wanting to get involved with human, the human humans in the human world. Um, so that was fun. And of course, also, uh, Victor Volpine was fun to write because he's basically, uh, my version of like a classic Disney villain, oh, um, cool. like mustache twirling and, uh, um, really good with the one liners and, um, just being clever and, uh, is he human? Mean. So yeah, he's, he was really fun. Is he human? 
Uh, he is a fox, actually. Oh, sweet. Yeah, Victor Volpine, uh, owner of the Sly Fox Theater. So, yeah. That's awesome. So I'm sure you had a blast yeah. writing dialogue for, for cartoon characters, but how difficult was it to capture their voices in your book? Uh, it was a little tricky at first. I had to get in the mind of a cartoon character, which was a little weird. The way I did, I guess, was just... Um, getting the her voice in my head which is i guess how i hear it is uh kind of light airy kind of like an airhead not exactly because she's she might sound dumb but she's not really dumb as she mentions uh in the book on occasion and so there was that and just general just uh picturing the characters in my mind and the rest came pretty easily once i thought about well this is what the character looks like in my mind so this is how the characters probably sound. And uh, I've, w- I've watched plenty of cartoons uh, in order to get an idea of what I would want the characters to look and sound like anyway. So after a while, it became pretty easy once I realized, well, this is the, what the archetype I'm using is. And then I can just uh, have them speak like this because this is what the character would sound like. Yeah, I bet it was a blast writing this book. Even the research it sounds was, fun. It was a fun. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes, yeah. you know, I'm sure research can just be, you know, a drag, but I'm, I'm sure you know, doing the research for this was a blast. Um, what, what's your favorite thing about the world you've created with Bambi Bazooms? Any themes, locations, characters? I mean, what's that, what's that takeaway for you? Mm, I suppose coming up with the characters is probably the most fun part because I can think about uh, what type of animals I want to include and what they would be, what their roles would be in the story, um, as well as what their roles would be in the community because like, I have this character named Benny Beaver who's a beaver and he runs this uh, Greasy Spoon Diner and I just thought, well, if he's busy as a beaver, he's uh, working at a job where he's really busy. Um, and, uh, yeah, so there, there's that, and there's, uh, yeah, just coming up with um, characters like that was a lot of fun, and just building the world really around them, um, because it's actually a pretty simple neighborhood they live in, in keeping with the more conservative uh, themes of their world, um, you get, like, them going to a bowling alley when they want to have fun or just uh, everything else is pretty simple. Like you have a grocery store and a barber shop. So it's really the characters and how they interact in that world. Um, and it really starts with the characters for me. Now, was there anything you wanted to put in Bambi Bazooms that didn't make it in any characters on the cutting room floor, any previous drafts, or did this story just come completely natural? Well, the story uh, came pretty natural. I mean, certainly there are themes that I introduce here or that I can introduce in other books. They just It would just be too crowded of a book and too big um, for me to introduce those. Um, but, uh, I mean, this is kind of a, neighbor, a minor spoiler, but, like, uh, c- cartoons, depending on who they are, they can't, like, have kids. Like, Bambi can't have kids, according to Cartoon Law, just because... She's a stripper, and that's not seemed uh, deemed an appropriate job um, to lend itself to her being a mother. So, the, kind of those type of issues, uh, parenthood themes, I might introduce like in a sequel. But um, for but for this book, yeah, I think I put pretty much everything I wanted to into this particular story. 
You know, I just pulled up your official blog, which, by the way, has a lot of great writing advice, but uh, yeah. you wrote an interesting blog titled, There's No Such Thing as Coincidence. Um, your blog <clears throat> talks about the similarities between The Hunger Games and the uh, Japanese yeah. novel Battle Royale, uh, which many people right. complain that Hunger Games was a blatant ripoff of Battle Royale. So what separates the burgeoning heart of Bambi Bazooms from being a ripoff or just fan fiction of Roger Rabbit, Cool World, etc.? Well, the one thing I decided to introduce in uh, this story, which I hadn't seen in other stories, was a definite origin uh, for the characters. Like I said, um, the, her creator finds buys this pen in a market in Istanbul, and it's filled with enchanted ink of a giant squid, and that's what allows him to create these uh, cartoon characters. And I think that kind of... Uh, it gets rid of some of the weird uh, logic of these other types of stories. Like, uh, it's always kind of bothered me when I've uh, like either read uh, Who Censored Roger Rabbit or watched Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Like, they're cartoons, right? So the humans have to create these painted backdrops for it to look... In, for it, so it doesn't look incongruous like otherwise it'd be if it would be a cartoon in the real world it'd basically be like a live action um, cartoon hybrid because they're cartoons but if it was taking place in the real world it like it wouldn't look like a cartoon you know uh -huh. um, but yeah so there's that I think that just the genre of the story is much different than any of the other ones like a true uh, romance rather than um yeah rather than say well cool world was one of the stories that actually um inspired me to create bambi bazoom so i guess i can talk for that a little bit um so in that movie there's the main relationship is between hollywood and jack deebs Holly is a cartoon living in cool world who wants to become human in order to do that, she has to have sex with a human. So she seduces Jack, they have sex, she goes into the real world, tries to attempt to take it over. And that's basically the plot of that, but what I didn't like about that is that the relationship isn't actually a real relationship because Holly's basically just using Jack for sex. And uh, yeah, it doesn't really explore what would happen if a cartoon and a human were actually to try to have a real relationship. And uh, the other movie that I would say inspired Bambi's Bazooms the most was Enchanted. And in that case, there is a believable relationship between a human and a cartoon. But I felt that that movie cheated a little bit just because oh, for most of the movie, Giselle is a human, as is Robert, who is her love interest, as is her other love interest, Edward. And and I basically thought, well, they didn't really need to be cartoons then if that plot point doesn't really come up later. I mean, yes, we know that she's a cartoon, but she's basically the mind of a cartoon in a human body. And that's... It's more of a metaphor than taking it literally. And I think just because I'm such a fan of cartoons in, in the first place, I wanted to think of, well, if cartoons were real, then uh, how would they really interact, interact with humans? So I got into not only what, what the relationships would be like, but just the concept of, well, what, how would these um, characters behave? What would their uh, 
physiology and, and, and anatomy even be. So I went pretty deep. I think that's another thing that maybe differentiates it. Um, I mean, who censored Roger Rabbit got pretty deep into that. I think it also kind of, like I said, just because you were supposed to believe that these cartoons have all, always existed as such, that you basically have to suspend your disbelief in that and kind of think that it's a gimmick, even though it's not really a gimmick. But, um, yeah, I just wanted to create a story that took that concept seriously and didn't treat it as just a gimmick. That was one of my major motivating factors. Yeah, and there's even a speech that is similar to the one Roger Rabbit delivers to Eddie Valiant in your book. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, um, I actually found that out later once I read that part of Who Censored Roger Rabbit. And um, I I tried to make the dialogue not exactly the same um, between the two properties. But I kind of, I left it in because it's really inevitable once you're talking about uh, prejudice between cartoons and humans that that naturally brings itself up. Um, I mean, the circumstances are different, but... I think it's a message that is kind of natural to that idea because cartoons and humans are so different. There are naturally going to be some sort of prejudices between the two, whatever shape they take. And uh, yeah, I guess you can you can see it as like an homage to that line, um, unintentional on my part. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm pretty happy with it as it is because. I just don't see how you can really avoid yeah. um, those themes um, just when you're dealing with the subject matter. Yeah, I agree. Um, do you find that it's yeah. hard to be an original storyteller in 2018? I mean, there's so many ideas that have been recycled, or, or is that the key, looking to the past to sculpt the future? What's your thoughts on that? Um, a little bit of um, both. I mean, I think there are just so many different types of um, archetypes for stories like uh like with george lucas he based star wars off uh old flash gordon serials as well as the hero's journey and uh almost any superhero has a superhero story has like similar tropes because they're like only only like a finite number of stories i forget where i read it um but there's like there have been a bunch of writers have claimed that there are only a certain number of stories out there and the rest of the stories are basically just modifications off that so and as time goes on i do think we're eventually just going to recycle the stories i mean look at hollywood right now they're recycling all the stories they have i mean there's like a shrek reboot now and uh yeah it's pretty crazy with all the uh disney live action remakes and i mean the the new lion king remake is basically just gonna be another cartoon anyway since it's just a realistic cgi so um i think the goal is um not so much um being on not so much worrying about being unoriginal as just telling a really good story i mean it can't be too derivative but yeah, I think it's just to write the best story you can and just yeah. definitely introduce your own voice. I think that's more important than anything. If you, it, if you try too hard to imitate other people, other people's stories, and just because that's what sells and what's popular, I think that's going to be obvious that you're trying too hard just to like try for like a cash grab or just 
um, write something that you think will sell, and it'll just come across as inauthentic. So I think you should just be true to yourself. Um, realize what audience is out there, because your goal is also to make money. <laughs> but um, definitely just uh, try to write what you want to read and just hope that other readers will want to read it. I mean, I've heard that advice before. I think it's really good advice, because especially if you try too hard to imitate uh, someone else's career, yeah. It's not going to be work because not only is it not true to yourself, it's not your voice, but uh, other readers are going to pick up on it. So yeah. yeah, and it would suck to to say that Roger Rabbit and Cool World have this monopoly on cartoons and human interactions. You know, uh, because oh, yeah. there's there's I mean, so many great yeah, stories out there that would be missing if someone like you, you know, did not take the reins. Because I'm sorry, we haven't had a Roger Rabbit or a Cool World inspired, you know, movie for. What, fucking 20 years? Yeah, I mean, like, Cool World was uh, 92, and I think, I think, as I mentioned before, other stories that have come along since then, I mean, like, even Space Jam, that was really more of a gimmick because you uh, inspired by commercials, you know, for the uh, Nike commercials with Bugs Bunny and uh, Michael Jordan, so... Yeah, I mean, I definitely wanted to contribute to the literature of uh, that type of story just because I think there's so much more you can do with it. I mean, I understand that cinematically what Roger Rabbit did was very difficult. And I mean, that's one of the main reasons it's in the AV pantheon. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's really difficult to imitate, but I mean, I don't think that means you should say, well, they did it best and there's no way anyone can top that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't want to be limited by that. And I just wanted to write a story that I thought, here's an interesting take on that type of story and the types of themes you could it could introduce. And I just decided to run with that. Did you ever think about putting even more distance between you and uh, Cool World and Roger Rabbit by making it like a very hard R, especially with the, the material and the content? Uh, no, I mean, I didn't want to force anything too much if it didn't really lend itself to that. I feel I tried to keep it pretty organic. I mean, because they are strippers, you're naturally going to have the sex and nudity in there and whatever violence I had in there. Uh, just, uh, it had to be, it had to be natural to the story. Um, just because... I mean, on the one hand, yes, it would have been more, more more cartoony in that sense, but I wanted to have a nice balance between being grounded and being uh, cartoony, if that makes sense. Do you think it would have been easier to market or sell if you made it into like your version of Meet the Feebles or uh, Team America, something that had a little bit of um, you know um, rough edges to it? Uh, possibly. Um, it might have. I think that's just uh, not the type of uh, stories I'm interested in telling, though. I think from the previous ones, novels I've written, and I think even in the future, I do want to have something that has is rooted in a strong um, social message, uh, social commentary, and just work whatever elements uh, are natural to the genre. Um, rather than focusing, or rather than starting with the genre and building a story um, around that. Yeah, I agree. I really want to talk about your creative process. Uh, do you have a routine? Uh, do you write outlines, or do you just sit down and words just magically come out of your fingers? 
<laughs> I usually at least start with a novel in my, in my head. Uh, there was a novel I wrote, I think my second novel, that actually had a written outline. I ended up deviating from that pretty early on, so I just kept the outline to my novels in my head and just a stream of consciousness as the story unfolds. Always keeping in mind, though, where the story has been and where I want to take it. Um, so that's generally my thought process. As in terms of like a daily routine, I usually try to write in the mornings just because um, I think better early on in the day. I'm, I'm awake, I'm alert, and I can just uh, write pretty easily also just to, you know, just to keep a routine as well in terms of when I write. Um, it's easier that way. Yeah, do you think you've grown as a writer since your last novel? What experience did you gain with uh, Bambi Bazooms? Um, well, I tried to make these characters as realistic as possible. I mean, given the nature of the story, I feel that as compared to my first two novels, it's grounding it in uh, more mature themes. Um, I mean, in this case, uh, prejudice and sexism. And just, uh, yeah, taking the characters more seriously while still trying to have a lot of fun with them. So just striking that balance, I think, was the main thing I got from uh, this third novel. So how long did it take you to complete the burgeoning heart of Bambi Bazooms, from writing to compiling a list of songs for a soundtrack? I mean, that takes a lot of work. Um. It was the bulk of a year, I would say, to write the first draft, a little over a year, and uh, then the rest of the time was actually waiting on the artwork for my cover and finding a publisher and then finally getting it professionally edited and published. So, so how long for writing, most, Bambi Bazooka? For writing, I would say around a year, maybe a little less, maybe a little bit more. Is that uh, about the same as your other novels, longer, less? Uh, a little bit longer. Uh, for my first novel, I think it was uh, like only writing the first draft was only about eight months. Um, and it, it's gone longer and longer as I've uh, decided to write longer novels. And I think it's kind of the other thing that's changed as I, as I keep on uh, writing is that um, I find that I have more to say with each book and that I've, I've gotten better at determining how long it needs to be for the type of story, uh, just because I don't want it to be too short and uh, shortchange uh, the themes of the book or the characters. So it's, yeah, it's trying to juggle all of that um, plot and characters and even setting just so, yeah, the, the just so the readers get the full experience as, as I want to um, give it to them as intended. You know, earlier today I was reading your blog on writer's block and the merits of fan fiction. Um, that was yeah. like what? That's probably about a year ago, maybe. Yeah, that was uh, that was one of my, one of my uh, earlier ones. Yeah, um, I can't seem to find the link. Um, but anyway, what are some things that uh, you do to get past writer's block? I mean, would you encourage new writers to write fan fiction? Is that a good exercise, or should they just jump into another original story? Well, in terms of a writer's block, whenever I find that I'm stuck at a point, I go back and uh, look at what I've already written and just try to remind myself uh, where 
want to take the story. Um, sometimes it's just a matter of uh, getting to a stopping point in the story and just coming back a day later and uh, thinking of how I want to approach a certain plot point. And uh, in terms of fan fiction, I actually started out writing quite a lot of fan fiction just to find my creative voice. So definitely in terms of finding your creative voice, it's a great tool to use. And I, I'm certainly not going to discourage anyone to just write fan fiction and just to just be that's all they're writing, only because, you know, the, the main goal is of writing fiction is if you really want to do it, it has to be something you really love. So if it's writing fan fiction, great. If you want to try to tackle your own stories, that's great too. I mean, I just my my main advice would be just to do what you feel is best for you. You know, I think that's great advice. Actually, I yeah. do think there's a lot of merits in in writing fan fiction too as an exercise. Um, what are, what are yeah. some fan fiction stories that you've written? Um, well, one of my longer uh, fan fiction stories was uh, based off this anime called The Dirty Pair, which are a couple of uh, intergalactic cops. Uh, named Kay and Yuri, who uh, battle bad guys in outer space. And uh, I uh, wrote it as kind of a sequel to um, their movie version of the story and just decided, well, what is my take on these characters and uh, where what would happen if they faced off of like, this type of villain and uh, the dynamic if you introduce other new characters. So... It was a fun exercise, though, and also proved that I could actually tackle a novel because that was a pretty long story for me to have written, especially up to that point. Most of the stories I've written were, like, at most 20 pages, and then it being, like, 70 pages, like, wow. single space type written. So, yeah, I mean, I'm glad I wrote in that sense because it gave me an idea of, A, I could write that length of a story, and also, B, just to hone my creative voice. So I really, I really enjoyed that part of it. No, yeah, I appreciate you sharing that with us. Yeah. I think that's very interesting. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the uh, technical stuff, from publishing to distribution and just everything in between. Um, you have a lot of knowledge that you can share with our listeners, so can you talk about the process? I mean, where does one of our listeners start if they have an idea for a story? Um, I mean, the main thing, of course, is first just to write it and uh, get the story written, uh, hone it, edit it, to your point where you think you want to publish it. So you do all and your then, editing uh, then for first drafts? For like for first drafts, yeah. Okay. Um, and then I, I usually try to at least give it several passes of editing just so I'm happy with it before I send it off to anyone else. And uh, I, I would recommend that writers... Um, try to, as best they can to find a traditional publisher or at least a hybrid publisher where they will actually do the editing for you. Um, if you have to self-publish like through Amazon, which is I did was what I did for my um, first two novels, Spring for the professional editing because it really helps. Um, because even when I self-edit and uh, then turn it on to turn it over to other people, they spot a lot of errors that I've made. I mean, I, I pride myself on being a pretty good editor, but uh, even I, there are, are mistakes that I can miss. So finding getting a good editor is also another important step. Um, in terms of finding a publisher, that's really up to you, uh, depending on what genre you're looking at. Um, I went with Amazon and CreateSpace for my first two novels just because it was easier. 
because I don't have an agent or any other connections um, to uh, get me to a bigger publisher than that. But if you have those connections, if you can afford an agent and uh, have connections with an agent, definitely do that too. Um, I would say ultimately my biggest message in terms of trying to publish is find the publisher that works best for you and for your story and um, go with them. So your last publisher, was that more of like a self-publishing, you said, for your first two books? Yeah, it was. I mean, Amazon puts out the books, but you have to do everything else. Um, well, if you want to, like, publish it for free, because they do offer, like, editing services and cover services. Um, I decided not to go that route because at the time I was confident in my skills, but if I were to go back, I'd probably actually pay for those services because I'm really happy with how this book has turned out, um, just visually from the cover and also just the inside styling. So, because you have a new yeah, publisher, I mean, you have a new publisher with Bambi yeah. Bazooms, right? Yes, uh, Page Publishing, which is a company that I found out via mostly a TV advertising. They've also done like a online advertising as well and what what's the case with them is you actually do pay them for their services um but i mean i i think it's worth it mainly because if you were going the self-publishing route you'd probably be spending that money anyways on marketing distribution editing and so on and uh so yeah it's it's a little bit of hybrid just because you're paying for the services where you it's just like you would for self-publishing but they do also provide services that you don't have to pay for, such as the marketing and the distribution. Okay, and what's their what's your publisher's name again? Page Publishing. Page Publishing, and you've had a good experience with them. Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely working with the publications coordinator. She's been keeping me on top of what stage the book has been in, and uh, she's been very willing to answer all the questions I have about the process. So. That's yeah, awesome. I mean, for the for this fourth novel, I mean, unless I can land a major publisher for it, I'd be willing to go back to them for that. So, That's nice. Yeah, so they I'm take they the take they take care of everything from publishing to page design, typesetting, um, copyright registration. They take care of all that. Then. Oh yeah, I mean, they. I just found out the book that was in the, currently in the copyright stage. I asked them, "Well, what work do I have to do?" I have to do? And they said, "Nothing. We're going to take care of it." So that That's was. Uh, it's really nice. Uh, That's just great. all the services they they're able to to provide. Yeah, it's great. And distribution, they push your novel for you. Um. Yeah. I mean, they they list it in uh, several different types of catalogs. They offer a free radio interview. Um, iTunes. I I've been. I've been promoting it on uh, Facebook and Twitter, but yeah, they distribute through Amazon and Barnes and Noble and iTunes. So that's nice. more distribution that I got from than than I got from the first two novels. So which were only on Amazon. Awesome, and your cover art is definitely yeah. a step up from your first two novels. Um, and a cover sells a book. I mean, so who did the cover art? That was actually a guy named Mike Walters, who I found on DeviantArt, because I'd uh, gone onto that site originally just to put some of my short stories on there. But there, and I found a bunch of really cool art uh, artists on there as well. So I was looking to see, well, what type of artists do uh, cartoony style art, um, like sexy cartoon art, pinup art. And I found that guy. So 
and he turned out a really good cover for me, and I was happy with it. Okay. So. Um, he wasn't as he actually was a little disappointed when he found out what the, what the type of book was, and he thought, "Oh man, I could have made this even more uh, cartoony than it was. It wouldn't fit the style." But I told him, "Like, no, man, I'm really happy with it, just because uh, it's the best cover I've had for any of my books." And um, I'm hoping that it will sell a lot of copies. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a step up. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think it's a step up from your uh, first two novels in terms of um, the cover. Um, But uh, so, would your publisher have helped provide a cover if you wouldn't have went with him? Yeah, they do offer that. Um, I'm not sure if it's. I don't think there's an additional fee for that. I know there's certain. No, I think that's included. So they they would have, but. Um, just because I, I already uh, came to them late in the process where they already secured a cover and everything else, so they just had to take care of the design work, which I'm also happy about with as well. I mean, it fits the type, the tone of the story, and it also just looks really good. So, yeah, they did a great job. So what's the overall cost from beginning to end? If someone out there is listening right now, they're very serious about publishing a book. Um, how much does it cost from beginning to end? Um, well, for me, with uh, page publishing specifically, it costs uh, around $3,000, and I'd say that's probably about what you're going to spend, because marketing is pretty expensive if you want to advertise in, like, trade journals or buy banner ads, um, and then also, you know, paying someone to do the book cover, that's at least a couple hundred dollars. And then the editing, which is maybe one or two, just well, one or two thousand, depending on how long the book is. So it can be pretty expensive. So you have to be aware of that. And then also, if you're self-publishing, you also have to be able to spend the money to print all these copies for your book. So if you can find a traditional publisher, that's probably the best way to go because they pay for everything, and then they pay you to actually write the book. But if not. Yeah, if you're really committed to that, you you really have to be willing to pay whatever it takes to get your book out there. So if someone orders your book right now, it's pretty much print on demand? Uh, I think so, yeah. Um, I mean, of course, as an ebook, it's not because you're just selling the, co- the digital copies. Um, but yeah, if it was print on demand, uh, for I know it was for Amazon CreateSpace, um, that was print on demand. Um, I'm not exactly sure about this one. They might have actually printed a bunch of copies already, but I mean, even traditional publishers have to go through like a second run. So yeah. even that's print on demand to an extent. Now, out of your out of that three thousand dollars, do they give you copies of your book for friends and family? Yes, I received ten free copies of my book for friends and family. I actually ended up getting a little bit more than that just because there's some errors um, on so like four of the copies, so I got an additional four free copies, so that was nice. Nice, which my wife um, and I have two of those free copies. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. So, yeah, that's, that's very interesting. I think that's some very valuable information that I think uh, a lot of people can take away from tonight. Yeah, I'm glad to provide it. But let's let's talk about your legacy as an author. I mean, what kind of statements do you want to make, and what kind of bibliography do you want to have? Uh, well, I don't really want to limit myself um, because for me, story comes first, then uh, then genre, and it all starts with the type of story I want to want to write. Sometimes it even start 
starts with the the types of characters I want to create. So I just want to create stories that uh, people can think about as well as just really enjoy reading them. Um, So I think in terms of my legacy, in terms of my style of writing, I think I want it to be uh, socially conscious, um, very thought-provoking, very entertaining as well, imaginative, I mean, types of worlds and types of characters that you wouldn't naturally think about, um, going against the grain, and just, uh, yeah, just uh, trying to create a unique voice that way. Um, so, like, when you're reading it, you think, yeah, this is a Matthew Wade book as opposed to anything else. So what do you have in store for 2019-2020? I mean, do you have plans to continue Bambi's adventures in future books, or are we going to get another original story? Uh, the next book you're going to get will be an original story. It's uh, called Actorberg, and it's set in this alternate uh, reality United States where the government has outlawed acting. Uh, they've deemed it a uh, psychological disorder. Um, a lot of that's politically motivated, which you can see in uh, the current um, administration today, how uh, they call most actors like libtards and all that just because so many actors are uh, more Democrats and liberal. And I used to think that the, well, the idea of the book is that the actors who disobey the law, like flagrantly violate the no acting rule, they get sent to these uh, re-education camps. And uh, I used to think, well, yeah, that's fantasy. So um, people are going to realize that this is very satirical. But I actually read a comment on uh YouTube video, which I don't recommend, by the way. I mean, uh, YouTube commenters are notoriously horrific anyways. But it's uh, one of the commenters was talking about Anne Hathaway. She was, like, giving this speech uh, to, like, a women's organization. And uh, this commenter was saying, well, she's, like, fit for a re-education camp or something like that. So I thought, uh, maybe this novel isn't so far-fetched, which is a little bit worrisome. But um, <laughs> at the same time, I mean, it's the type of fiction I think we re- we need right now. Thinking about, well, where could uh, this our current country lead if we're not careful? So it's a bit of a cautionary tale, also a bit of a satire on politics and show business. So I hope people like it. I mean. I really enjoyed uh, writing the characters in the story, and it's uh, that first draft is uh, pretty much almost done. I should get have it finished either this week or next, and then it's just on the editing stage for that. So that's awesome. That'll man. be out, uh, yeah, either next year or the next, uh, depending on um, depending on how long the editing takes. Uh, yeah, um, and then after that, I actually might do a sequel to um, Bambi's with the Zooms just because I've already written that world. It's It won't take a lot, whole lot of research. And I'm at a point right now where monetarily, um, in order to write the types of stories I want to write, I need the freedom um, to take as much time as I need, do as much research as I need. And uh, not having a job right now kind of hurts that freedom, but once I'm in a more secure place, definitely I'll probably move on to some of the more ambitious story ideas I have and then just write those and just see where uh, the rest of my writing career takes me. That's awesome. I'm legitimately excited about that. I think that sounds like a great story. It sounds, I'm, I'm a sucker for satire. You know, I know you're a, a fan you. of Paul. That. I know you're a uh, fan of Paul Verhoeven too, so I know you're going to really know that satire. Yeah. Yeah. So um, when do you think we're going to see that? Maybe a year? Probably. 
probably within the next year. So like I said, the first draft's almost done, so it's really a matter of finding the publisher. And if I just decide to go with uh, this publisher, it won't, it shouldn't take very much uh, long at all. Um, so yeah, I'd say probably sometime next year. So did you have to come up with the whole three thousand before they even completed your book? Um, well, I've been paying it in, in, in installments. Like up front, I had to give them like a certain amount, and then it's the rest of it's like three hundred dollars in installments. And I think I only have a couple more installments left, though, um, because it took so long to actually go through the publishing process. But uh, yeah, so for most most of it was paid off before the book was actually published. That's awesome, though. They completed your book before it was paid off. That's mm-hmm. so. I'm happy with them. What's a dream project for you? Let's speak it into existence. Anything you want to do. Mm-hmm. If I had a dream project, it probably would be like a Star Wars novel or screenplay. Um, just because, you know, that's the world that got me interested in science fiction and fantasy in the first place. So I'd want to kind of pay tribute to that just by writing the, it's, uh, my, my dream Star Wars story. Uh, in terms of what that is, um, I kind of like to explore the notion of why Jedi's aren't in relationships, like going back um, and just and doing like kind of an origin story of that, kind of uh, like a forbidden romance. Well, not exactly, it wouldn't be a forbidden romance at that point because you know I would posit that well, Jedi's could probably could have relationships. Uh, at that point but then like something went really really wrong they decided uh no attachments are dangerous and yeah you have to be basically become a monk and uh that causes like a lot of problems as uh star wars stories have pointed out um so yeah i'd like to explore that and just you know have fun in that world uh treat it as a really cool sandbox well i hope you can make it happen someday man yeah that'd be nice is there anything i haven't brought up that you want our listeners to know about tonight um, I think we've covered pretty much everything. I definitely encourage you to check out the rest of my blog posts. I think I've offered a lot of good advice. Um, please continue to follow my blog on WordPress. Um, if you go on my Twitter account, you can get to my blog that way. You can also find it on my main Amazon page at Amazon.com. Um, I think just click on my novels. I think you can get to my author page that way. And I think we've covered uh, pretty much everything. So the big question, and you've covered it a few times, I think, but where can we purchase the burgeoning heart of Bambi Bazooms? You can find it on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and iTunes. Uh, Currently, it's only available in paperback. I'm thinking by the end of the year, it should be available also as an ebook, and then you can actually get an iTunes there. Um, so yeah, it's gonna be an ebook and in print as well. And uh, yeah, whatever version you prefer, go ahead and uh, I encourage you to read it. Yeah, I don't think we can cover that enough, right? Where you can buy the no. book. <laughs> yes. But uh, thank you very much for your time. It's been an honor and a pleasure. And I don't say this very often, but uh, Matt, I think that you're an inspiration, man. I, I see you putting in the hard work. I see that you that you have three novels written. It's an inspiration to me. It makes me want to just, after this podcast, after this episode, just just start writing, just start creating. Because I think, you know, life is so short. I think that's one of the, the biggest things that we can do um, as humans, man, is just, just create, whether it's a podcast, a website, a book, a movie, a comic. I don't care what it is. 
just create, you know, and uh, seeing you create three novels is a huge inspiration yeah. to me, and uh, I'm I'm lucky to call you a friend. Thank you. That means a lot, and I definitely, if you have uh, story ideas, you, Brad, or whoever else is listening, put them out there. Um, if you're happy with it and you really enjoy doing it, do it. I don't want to limit any writers out there. I mean, definitely, though, if you're not feeling it, if you're feeling, if you're feeling maybe this isn't for me, um, just do it as a hobby um, and still just have, like, fun with it. Um, but if you really feel that this is what I want to do in my life, this is what I'm most passionate about, do go it. for it, yeah. go all out, and just, uh, yeah, just give it all you've got. Yeah, I love that advice. Um to all of our listeners, you can find us on adventuresinvideoland.com. We are on Instagram, but the conversation, Matt, always begins and ends on Facebook. <laughs> on Facebook. You've been listening to Criticism in its finest hour. Until next time, my good people, peace out. Yeah.